As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is very involved in the work of salvation. He gives life to the spiritually dead. He enables God's people to love him and serve him. He equips you to be the people of God. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fox Den. The other day, one of my listeners asked me to talk about the Holy Spirit. So let me begin by saying, if there's a topic that you would like me to discuss, please send me an email at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. You can also go to thefoxdenjournal.com forward slash podcast and leave a comment. Also, if you would like to sign up for my weekly devotional email, you can go to thefoxdenjournal.com and sign up. You'll find the sign-up form to the right of my website. Now, if you do sign up, you're going to receive an email to confirm that you've actually signed up. So make sure you follow the instructions on that email to confirm your request. I'll leave a link to my website in the description. Now, as I said earlier, one of my listeners asked me to talk about the Holy Spirit. The reason being is that in many circles, we hear very little about the Holy Spirit. Many churches seem to focus on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They seem to focus on tongues as a sign of baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm very familiar with this. When I became a Christian, I was involved in a church that focused on the gifts of the Spirit. And the main gift they focused on was speaking in tongues. However, the Holy Spirit is far more involved in our lives than enabling us with gifts. So with that in mind, let's begin by looking at who the Holy Spirit is. And the first thing to mention here is the Holy Spirit is God. First, we see his involvement in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So in the beginning, we see the Holy Spirit involved in creation. And then we see other references to the Spirit of God. So, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 1, the Spirit of God came upon Azariah. And that phrase, Spirit of God, indicates God, not an aspect of God. So, the Spirit of God is not like the breath of God or his life. The Spirit of God is God. So, this is denoting a person. In fact, in Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is called God. In verse 4, we see that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, and then Peter says in verse 5 that he lied to God. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is God. And then second, we see that the Holy Spirit is a person of God. Now, perhaps I should take time in a different episode to talk more about the Trinity, but God has revealed himself as one God who exists in three persons— Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is a key belief of Christianity. In fact, it is safe to say that if a person does not believe in the Trinity, he or she cannot be a Christian. Now, this may make some of you angry, but this is an important point. Historic Christianity believes in the Trinity. And furthermore, the Bible teaches that there is one God who exists in three persons. So the Holy Spirit is God and a distinct person of God. So there are not three gods, and there is not one God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, that view is heretical. It's a false view of God. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute here. You just said that there is one God 
who exists in three persons. And now you're saying that God revealing himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is heretical. Well, yes, because to believe that God revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit implies that there is one God who is one person, but shows himself as three persons. And I hope you catch the distinction that I'm making. And so let me throw out a warning here. Be very careful when you read statements of faith of different churches or different Christian leaders. You can actually find books in Christian bookstores of authors who hold this false view of God. And this view is an ancient heresy called modalism. So when somebody says that there is one God who reveals himself or manifests himself in three ways, that's a heretical view because it states that there is one God who exists in one person. He just reveals himself or he shows himself in three different ways. Now, the clearest picture that we have of the three distinct persons of the Godhead is the baptism of Jesus found in Mark chapter 1. So when Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the Father said from heaven that this is his Son, and he is pleased in him. Now, you might say it doesn't say that this is the Father. Well, he calls Jesus his Son. And there are other places in the Bible that refer to God the Father. So we know that this is the Father speaking from heaven, and he's speaking to his Son, Jesus. So there is one God, and this one God exists in three persons, and we see all three persons at the baptism of Jesus. Are you confused? Don't worry about it. None of us really understand the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that the Trinity isn't real. And it's okay that we don't understand this concept. God is God. We are not. We cannot fathom and understand every aspect of God. We can only understand that which God has revealed about himself, and the Holy Spirit has enabled us to understand. So again, a key belief of Christianity is the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit is God and a person of God. And if you're a believer in Christ, certainly you've been baptized, and the Trinity was confirmed in your baptism. When a person is baptized, they're baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And once again, the Trinity is a key belief of Christianity, and it spans the history of the church. In fact, in the first centuries, following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church struggled to properly understand God. Many differing views popped up in the church, and the church had to determine which view was correct. And due to these struggles, many creeds were written. Now, as a quick side note here, some people don't like creeds and confessions. You may have heard people say something like, we have no creed but Christ. And as the Lutheran satire, a YouTube channel, rightly states, that's a creed. But this is what I want you to understand. Creeds and confessions are important. They put on paper what we believe the Bible teaches. Now at this point, let me refer you to that episode of the Lutheran satire that discusses creeds. And I'm going to put a link in the description section. Concerning the Holy Spirit... In these creeds, we confess the deity of the Holy Spirit with his distinctive personhood. Let me first touch on the Apostles' Creed. The first thing to note here is that it wasn't written by the Apostles and was probably written in the 4th century A.D. And in the Apostles' Creed, the three persons of the Trinity are identified. First the Father, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. And concerning the Holy Spirit, it simply says that we believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And now let's look at the Nicene Creed. It too was written in the 4th century AD. And like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed acknowledges all three persons of the Trinity. And notice what it says about the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord and giver of life. Next, it says that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. It also says that he is to be worshipped as God. And then finally, it says that he spoke by the prophets. Now let's fast forward in time to the 16th century. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And this is considered the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And the Belgic Confession was written 44 years after Luther's 95 theses. So let's take a look at Article 8 of the Belgic Confession. And this is what it says. In keeping with this truth and word of God, we believe in one God, who is one single essence, in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct, according to their incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might, proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, this distinction does not divide God into three, since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has his own subsistence, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. It is evident, then, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and that likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinct, are neither divided, nor fused, or mixed together. For the Father did not take on flesh, nor did the Spirit, but only the Son. The Father was never without the Son, nor without his Holy Spirit, since all these are equal from eternity in one and the same essence. There is neither a first nor a last, for all three are one in truth and power and goodness and mercy. So what does this say about God? There is one God who is one single essence. And this one God exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now what does it say about the Holy Spirit? He is the eternal power and might. He also proceeded from the Father and the Son. He is equal from eternity with the Father and the Son, and he is the same essence as the Father and the Son. Now let's fast forward a little bit more to 1648, and let's take a look at the Westminster Confession. And this is what chapter 2, paragraph 3 says. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So what does it say about God? That this one God exists in three persons, and they are of one substance, power, and eternity. And what does it say about the Holy Spirit? It says that he proceeded from the Father and the Son. Now let's look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, again written in 1648. Let's take a look at question five, and it asks, are there more gods than one? And it answers by saying, there is but one only, the living and true God. And then question six asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And it answers by saying, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Notice that the Catechism identifies all three persons, but all three persons are united. They're the same in substance. These three persons are equal in power and glory. And that means that the Holy Spirit is God and is a person of God. He is the same substance as the Father and the Son. And he is equal in power and glory with the Father and Son. And he is to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son. So now that we've seen who the Holy Spirit is, let's look at what he does. And the creeds and confessions define this a bit for us. He is the Lord and giver of life, as the Nicene Creed states. He is the eternal power and might, according to the Belgic Confession. And with this in mind, let me go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism again. And question 29 asks, How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? And it answers by saying, We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. And then question 30 asks, how does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? And it answers by saying, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Now this is what I want you to see here. We don't believe the gospel by our own cognitive abilities. It's not that we're smarter than other people and we get it where other people don't. The Holy Spirit works faith in us. You see, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, none of us would come to faith. None of us would believe God. And if you take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you'll see that faith is a gift. The whole work of salvation is a gift, according to Ephesians 2, 8. And faith is part of that. So faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we muster by our own cognitive effort. It's all a work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, how could you believe God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? According to Ephesians 2, you were dead. So how could you believe God if you were spiritually dead? It takes a supernatural act to make you alive and enable you to believe. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, you'll see that Paul says that the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. In other words, you wouldn't get it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works faith in us, and it works the understanding of the gospel in us. So with this in mind, let's take a look at question 31. And it asks, what is effectual calling? And it answers by saying, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. If you're a believer in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit made you a believer in Christ. According to this question, he did several things. He convinced you of your sin and misery. Again, apart from him doing that, you would never recognize that as sin. He enlightened your mind in the knowledge of Christ, and he renewed your will. And by doing all of this, he persuaded and enabled you to embrace Christ. Your salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit alone. You did nothing in your salvation. We tend to believe that we made a decision for Jesus. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't have made a decision for Jesus. And it's not that he kind of drew your attention and then you made a decision for him. 
He made you alive. Then you made a decision for him. So the Holy Spirit regenerated you and he gave you the faith that he requires. So your salvation is wholly a work of God. And you coming to faith is a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, furthermore, the Holy Spirit makes us alive with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 2, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life. And again, this is known as regeneration, where God makes the spiritually dead spiritually alive. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul says that the Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. So the Spirit breathes life into us. So you heard the good news of Christ, and the Spirit enabled you to believe the gospel of Christ. That's when you believed, when the Holy Spirit enabled you to do so. But not only did he work in you life and faith, he worked in the prophets and apostles. Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. There it's talking about the prophecy of Scripture, and it says that these men spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And then take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. There Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So you can see from the 2 Peter passage that the Holy Spirit moved these prophets and they spoke from God. And we see here that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And this is the doctrine known as inspiration where God inspired these men to write what he wanted them to write. And by inspiration, we're not talking about that they were highly motivated. Going back to the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, the Holy Spirit moved these men to speak from God. So the Bible is God's word, God speaking to us. And therefore, it's authoritative. And I talk about this in more detail in episode 29. Next, let's go back to Romans chapter 8. And there we see that the Holy Spirit enables us to put the deeds of the body to death. We see that in verse 13. And also, the Holy Spirit enables you to call out to God, calling him Father. We see that in verse 15. Furthermore, the Spirit bears witness in us that we are children of God. We see that in verse 16. And also, we see that the Spirit intercedes for us. We see that in verses 26 and 27. Now, we see parallels between Romans chapter 8 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us, working in us to fight against sin and to live in righteousness. Now, take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And there God makes a promise that he's going to give us new hearts, and he's going to put his spirit within us. And by the power of his spirit, he's going to cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. So we see the influence of the Holy Spirit in the work of sanctification, where he helps us to fight against sin and say no to it and to live in righteousness. And then look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It's God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know what this means? You get to take credit for your sin... And the Holy Spirit gets credit for your obedience. Don't boast in your good work. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in you to do any good work for God. He gets the credit. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee to our inheritance. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5 states that he is our guarantee. 
But Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 states that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is the guarantee of your inheritance. So if you're a believer in Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and he is your guarantee of your inheritance. Now, as another side note, a seal is a mark of ownership or authentication, so the Holy Spirit is God's mark on you that you belong to him. Do you know what that means? You can't lose your salvation. God won't mark you as his own and give you a guarantee and then revoke your salvation. That would make God a liar. You can say that the Holy Spirit is like a receipt. He's proof of purchase. Said another way, he is proof that Christ purchased you with his own blood. So the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your salvation, of your inheritance. And then finally, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to believers. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. But we also see a range of gifts in 1 Corinthians. Now, the first thing to notice about the gifts of the Spirit is that they are for the building up of the church. Five times in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul refers to the building up of the church. In verses 4, 5, 12, 17, and 26. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts to believers to strengthen and encourage fellow believers. The key to the spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit is not to determine which gift you have. Don't waste your time taking spiritual gifts inventories. Who's to say they're even correct? Serve the Lord in whatever capacity you're willing and able, and trust that the Spirit will use you for the benefit of God's people and for His glory. And furthermore, I'm not sure Paul has given us an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. The Spirit may gift us in other ways not mentioned in the Bible. The key to spiritual gifts is to build up the church and to glorify God. Your spiritual gifts are not for you. They're for God's people. Now, in this short study, we've seen that the Holy Spirit does so much more than enable people to speak in tongues. He does so much more than just gift people with spiritual gifts. And I think we have to be careful when we limit the Holy Spirit to spiritual gifts. We're not seeing him as he truly is. As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit is very involved in the work of salvation. He gives life to the spiritually dead. He enables God's people to love him and serve him. He equips you to be the people of God. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.